706. All right, the Justice Minister David Lametti uh, tabled new legislation yesterday aimed at cracking down on repeat violent offenders being granted bail through a handful of targeted criminal code reforms. It's all under Bill C. 48, and it's uh, looking to strengthen Canada's bail systems, uh, as mentioned, uh, targeting repeat violent offenders, cases involving firearms, knives, bear spray, weapons, just to name a few. This bill responds directly to concerns raised by the premiers, as well as police, mayors, and victims' advocates. It flows from the work that we have been doing together with the provinces and territories for several months now, highlighted by our most recent meeting in March, where I committed to bring legislation forward to reform the bail system. And the biggest part of this proposal is a reverse onus Mm -hmm. on bail conditions for violent uh, offenders or people who have been accused of violent crimes. So reverse onus, basically, instead of prosecution having to prove uh, why they should not get bail, the actual defendant has to prove why they should get bail in that case and prove to the court that they will not continue to be a risk to the general public. So that's seen as a, as a big step forward. The question is, is that enough? Is that all that's in there? Is there more? Should there be more? Let's uh, chat this morning with Dan Jones, who's a criminologist, a former police officer, associate chair of justice studies at Northwest College, helping us run through all of this this morning. Dan Jones, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Just uh, like you said, trying to wrap our head around what all is or isn't <laughs> in here. Anything we should think about here? You know, the the thing that I struggle with is that this it seems a bit performative. It's we're going to lock people up and remand for a longer t- period of time. That doesn't mean that they're going to be addressed the root cause of what creates the violence, what creates the issues, what creates the crime isn't still not being addressed. And I think that's where governments and systems are failing, because once we lock them up, we think that they're going to come out better. Um, but they eventually get out, and they're not going to be better because we, they're they're not putting any um, resources into addressing the what the why these individuals are violent. So, are you talking about mental illness? Are you talking about drug addictions? Are you talking about uh, cycle of violence? Yeah, trauma. I'm talking about trauma. The research that we've done with the University of Alberta Prison Project shows that 97% of women and 95% of men incarcerated in federal and provincial jails have a trauma background. And that trauma background, just because you've experienced trauma doesn't mean you're going to be a, an offender. But the vast majority of our offender, people that have offending behavior have trauma backgrounds. And we're not addressing any of that. And none of this, this is just another Band-Aid solution or uh, to crime that's going to not actually create any difference. If the people go to remand for longer, it doesn't mean that they're going to come out better. It seems to me, though, the intent of this was was for initial and on the face of it protection. So you don't let potentially violent offenders back out on the street until you can get them through the full justice system. So while I'll, I would agree with you that there are much larger issues at stake here, is is it not important to at least put a Band-Aid on, stop the bleeding so that it protects members of the public? That seems to be what it's intended to do. It does. The problem is eventually everyone gets out. Unless we start addressing an actual issue, eventually everyone gets out. So it becomes, it's almost like a false positive. We're like, oh, you know, look, we've reduced this until everyone gets out and they come out, you know, in a, in a worse state. I think we need to start, you know, I, this is a, 
this is a start. I think there needs to be what next? What are we going to do for these individuals that are actually incarcerated? How are we going to make sure that when they leave the jails, when they leave the remand, when they leave the federal prisons, that they're actually coming out in a better state than they were when they went in? And I think that's the next phase of this. So, Dan, what does that look like then, in your opinion, from your research, from the work that you've done? What what needs to be done for these folks while they're in prison to make sure it doesn't happen again when they get released? Access to cognitive behavior therapy, access to EMDR, access to multiple different modalities to address the trauma that they've suffered in their lives, access to real addictions and treatment, not just the 28-day rinse and repeat recycle, this actually accessing things to address what traumas that they've faced in their lives, vicarious or, or experience, and how do we then ensure that these individuals go on to a life that is better than the one that they had before, giving them permission to be the people they want to be and giving them the resources and the skills to actually come out of jail better than when they went into it. How much detail have you been able to, to, to glean out of these proposed changes, the Bill C-48? Uh, we mentioned the reverse onus on, on bail. Uh, what else is in there? Uh, is there any kind of an impact or a substantial impact uh, of what else is in that bill? No, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is the reverse onus piece. And, and, and that's not a terrible thing for someone to have to prove why they should be released rather than, than the Crown to prove why they shouldn't be. But there also then becomes potentially... Um, depending on who your lawyer is and how much, uh, you know, what your your access to, to lawyer lawyers, either mm-hmm. either that it, it, it becomes potentially a, another thing that, that distances people that are vulnerable and poor versus someone who has money, right? And that's one of those things we have to think about as well. All right. You know what? Dan Jones joining us this morning is a criminologist, he's associate chair of justice studies at Norquest College. You know, we talk about you know, treating um, those who are in jail and dealing with the trauma that, you know, in in part got them there, Um, which, okay, I think there's a lot of folks that can can agree with that. But to immediately make change and impact with, you know, the challenges that we're seeing on the streets right now, and, and Dan, you know it. I mean, you work downtown. You've seen it. You've you've worked the streets. Um, what can be done? You know, there's so many different ways to uh, mobilize law enforcement that are evidence-based. And I think that we need to start encouraging police leaders to look at these evidence-based pra- practices. Um, Hotspots policing is, is, reduces crime by 30 to 80 percent in every single study that's been done. Focused deterrence. Focused deterrence in 1995, the first one that was ever done was the Boston ceasefire, ceasefire where they targeted shooter, shooters in violent crimes, and they targeted them, but they also targeted them with an alternative to, jo- to jail, alternatives like employment, um, housing, uh, counseling. And what they saw was a massive reduction in violence. And these evidence-based practices, for some reason, whatever reason, police leaders across the, this country and the U.S., in use them, even though we know academically they are a way better way to deploy police resources. And it's that disconnect between policing and academia that results in this, what we're sitting in right now is that we have all these problems and everyone's like, oh, how do we fix them? Well, we look at the academic 
literature. But Dan, aren't we kind of doing hotspot policing, for example, in downtown Edmonton, putting more boots on the ground in in the core, bringing in the sheriffs, doing all of that sort of stuff? No, that's blitz policing, which is different. Hotspot policing is taking micro spaces and having a police officer in those spaces for 15 minutes randomized throughout the day. 15-minute intervals, randomized intervals, and it actually, what when you have a bunch of police officers always there and all the time, it actually increases the level of harm. It increases dispersion of crime. But if you actually follow the hotspots policing academic liter- literature, which they're not doing, which they need to do, you would actually see a reduction in crime rather than a dispersion of crime. And- Interesting. Uh, on this, we were talking about federal legislation, but obviously the, the mental health and a lot of the other things become a provincial jurisdiction. So we'll see whether we uh, get some action uh, moving forward on that. Dan Jones, in the meantime, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your insight. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Cheers. Have a good day. Dan Jones is a criminologist, associate chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College, and as mentioned, a retired member of the Edmonton Police Service. So uh, been out there on the streets as well as being a criminologist. Yeah, and, and obviously some some different thoughts about uh, how it should be attacked and, and what, in his opinion, what's not being done and what needs to be done. Yeah, and maybe, maybe there's a lot more, but uh, multiple jurisdictions. We've talked about this a thousand times, how complicated and multi-layered and, uh, and, and, and deep this mm-hmm. overall mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. is.